Hi, Jack. Oh, yeah. I thought you were waving at me. Yeah, we yeah, are. We're welcoming you. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've got a dog with us today. Too. Oh, we do? Yeah. All right. Uh, probably two. Right. We got two dogs. <laughs> I don't see yours, but I figured it was there. Where's your doggy, Constance? <laughs> uh, she's on her perch. Okay. She likes us <laughs> looking out the window. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, Diana. Hi. Jack? I'm just turning the volume down a bit, Father Hayden. Good, good, uh, just yeah. um, Is Carol okay today? No, she's got, uh, she had the teeth, deep cleaning on her teeth, and they gave her an antibody, and uh, she had a reaction to it. Oh. So she's down and out for few days she'll be okay okay she went to the doctor this morning so okay do you need anything or you no need help in any way no she's fine okay thanks for asking me yeah tell her we miss her and we'll be mm -hmm, praying yeah. for her speedy recovery yeah. <laughs> yeah. what kind of reaction did she have just that uh Wanted to sleep 15 hours, and she was nausea, and uh, one other thing that was bothering her. She had a headache, but she stopped taking it yesterday, and she felt better this morning. With her heart, I'm not playing doctor here, but just thinking with her heart situation, yeah, that might be something for her. Yeah. Our doctor to know about. Yeah. Yeah. So. How are you? I'm doing well. Are you? Okay. Yes. I went in and got my annual physical the other day. And? And it seems like I'm doing better than ever. Wow. Only because I've been exercising more. And Excellent. Yeah. yeah, they always say that, don't they? Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> and for Carolyn. That's good. Is she doing better? She Carolyn was... is doing better. Okay, yeah. Although, she said that when she came to church on Sunday, toward the end, she was running out of steam a little bit again, but at least she made it through. Yeah. But the week before she didn't make it through, she had to go to the car and rest. Uh -huh. so she's even better. But it's hung on. <laughs> sure has. Have you you've been staying healthy? I have, but I have a friend who's, who uh, said her father-in-law always talked about when he got together with his buddies, they had an organ recital. They had to talk about all the organs of their bodies. So, <laughs> <laughs> I love so it. I feel like this is an organ recital yeah, right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I know, it's a cute expression, I think. It is. Um, Eric got out of the hospital last night. No way. Yes, he, we had to go to the emergency room Monday for, uh, they admitted him for an obstructed bowel. So we were happy to come home last night and be in our own. What time did you get home? We got home at 8 last night. Was he at home? He was at home. But it was, you know, oh, yeah. our visit, well, we're thankful That's we no got fun. to be home. No. Yeah. But I... <clears throat> came and went to the hospital via the way I knew best, which was the emergency route. Mm -hmm. So every night when I left, I left for the emergency room. Oh, yeah. 
Oh my goodness, it was so frightening to see so many people. Really? Oh my goodness. Really? Oh my goodness. They were overflowing out into another area. Oh my gosh. Boy, that would be contagious there. Well, as soon as I saw the mass of humanity that were all sick, it's like, how long can I hold my breath? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) As I walk. Get out and wash your hands. (laughs) Yeah. So, actually, Eric is, they didn't find anything. They couldn't figure out what the cause was, so they, the good news was they ran tests and couldn't figure it out, so they said, why don't you go home and see if your body can heal itself, and mm-hmm. we said, gladly, we'll go Gladly. Home. Yeah. <sighs> glad you said home. Yeah, thank you, we are Is there any way we can see the board or? Okay. So I'm going to make sure it's coming up to you right now. One sec. Thank you so much. Yeah, come on in, in person. <laughs> oh, I wish I was there. I, I, I don't like being, not being there. <laughs> Are you going to send that to all of us? No, I'm going to send it to them here, yeah. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to like, start us off with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going on uh, studying Ezekiel. We have a lot to talk about today. All right. Uh, so the Lord be with you. And my Spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I'd like to begin by uh, reading the passage at hand, which is Ezekiel 37. Uh, and it's, we're continuing with our theme of discussing the, uh, the resurrection passages here. And so uh, we will, uh, let's go ahead and go to that. Pull up my. Bible notes here. All right. So I'll read it for us, and then we'll begin discussing it uh, kind of from the big picture, and then we'll move into the kind of small picture here. All right. 
the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, they were very many, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you and put you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, twice and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick Ephraim, before all the house of Israel, his companions. And then join them one to, the, one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become your hand. Children of the peop your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, 
nor with their detestable things, nor with their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their David, my servant, them, and they shall all have lunch. They shall also walk in my judgment, observe my statutes, and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So, you know, a simple, straightforward, you know, down-to-earth passage, right? Um, so we need, to, uh, we need to begin unpacking this, I think, uh, with a little bit of a big picture study on what we're dealing with with, um, with uh, the book of Ezekiel in general, since we were talking about Isaiah last time. It's good to kind of move forward. So Ezekiel is one of the, the major prophets of the Old Testament, and he follows on, on the prophecies of Jeremiah. So if you think about it in kind of chronological order, the major prophets, you have Isaiah, who's dealing with reflecting on the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians, and then the imminent fall of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. Then you have Jeremiah, who's kind of been like the hot... Uh, we're having so we, uh, Jeremiah is in the hot seat of the fall of Judah and the fall of the capital city of Jerusalem, and then you have Ezekiel, who's the prophet of the exile. He's the one who's going to be out in exile with the people when he receives his call to be the prophet uh, to the people. And so, who is Ezekiel first? And it'll help us to understand what's going on with all this imagery that he's being shown in his prophetic uh, visions. So Ezekiel was a priest of the temple. He was, he was supposed to be a priest of the temple. Um, but something happened. He got deported from Jerusalem uh, before he was able to begin his temple service. So, um, well, I, Bishop has probably talked before about the dating of the, uh, the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah, but just for a refresher course and by the notes there, um, we can see that the, the first, the, the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom, happened in a couple of different ways, and at least in probably two or three major ways. Um, and so you have the earliest deportation of, the, of people from Jerusalem before the destruction of the city in 597 BC, which is, you know, is about 11 years before the fall of the city itself. And so Ezekiel, along with Daniel and you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the, the people we read about in the book of Daniel, they're all getting carted off from Jerusalem in the middle of that early deportation. Um, what happened was is that the king at the time, at the time Jehoiachin, uh, he had conspired with uh, the Egyptians to try and uh, double-cross Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon at the time, and Nebuchadnezzar had crushed everybody in this attempt. And what happened was is that he then punished Jerusalem by taking away all of their most like elite and noble youth and said, we're going to hold them hostage in Babylon so that if you try anything like this again, 
were going to slaughter all of them, basically going to hold them as a ransom so that Jerusalem would fall into line as a vassal state of the Babylonians. Um, and so Ezekiel is living in a deportation camp in Babylon at the time this book begins. And he's, he's sitting there, and he's on. And the book begins on his 30th birthday. And he's sitting by one of the streams of Babylon, uh, looking towards Jerusalem. And he's really sorrowful, because at the age of 30, uh, people of the priestly household of Jerusalem would begin their temple service. You didn't become a full-fledged priest of the temple until you were 30. Um, and so Ezekiel, on the day of the, of the day he was supposed to begin his temple service, <clears throat> is in exile. He's far away from the temple in Jerusalem, and he's sitting and kind of like like weeping by the river by the river in Babylon because he wants to be where you know what he's been preparing for his whole life, basically, to be a servant of the presence of God in the midst of his temple. And then something shocking happens. What happens is is that right there next to the stream, it, Ezekiel sees a vision of the throne of God. And it appears that with the, the images of the cherubim and all the imagery of the most holy place of the inner sanctum of the temple is suddenly revealed to him there in the midst of Babylon. And Ezekiel is incredibly perplexed by this because he's saying, like, what? He basically says, like, what are you doing out here? And what's, what follows in the structure of the story is we have 24 chapters, the first 24 chapters of the book, or really the first 11 chapters of the book have to do with God explaining to Ezekiel exactly why he on his throne with his attending angelic creatures are not in Jerusalem where they have always been since the establishment of the city and the consecrating of Solomon's temple. And so Ezekiel's like, okay, so if you're here, what's going on in Jerusalem? And God reveals to him in the next uh, 12 chapters of the book what exactly has been happening. So in the first 11 chapters, God says, God says to him, you know, I have... Basically, you know, my people have become so idolatrous that they have become beyond, you know, saving but for a major cataclysm. And it'll be a kind of severe mercy on them that I enact because it'll be this thing that, that finally redeems them from this deep-seated sin that they have been engaging in of welcoming the pagan idols and the pagan gods and their practices into the holy place that I have established for them, the holy city of Jerusalem. And this becomes an image for what has happened in the heart of every individual person in Judah at that time. He's saying, look at the temple courts as though they are the heart of my people. And behold, that the people have divided their hearts to serve, to try and serve me with, you know, with these kind of outward forms of worship. But inwardly, they have devoted themselves to all of these pagan gods. And because of this, only a major sign um, of what is really happening in their hearts is going to suffice to shake them into recognizing how far they have fallen from the covenant faithfulness that I have called them to. And so God says, so what I have done is I have removed my glory from the temple. So if we recall from the book of 2 Kings, we have, um, or from 1 Kings, we have the consecration of Solomon's temple. Solomon builds this glorious temple in Jerusalem on the high place of Jerusalem. And when he prays the prayer of consecration for it, the glory of the Lord descends on the temple and settles over it. And the Hebrew for this is the, and we have two words that get used um, uh, frequently to describe this. Um, the technical terms are kavod and shekinah. Uh, and so you have, um, kavod is, is a word often described the glory of the Lord, his glory. And it, kavod actually is a word that 
um, denotes kind of like gravity or like weightiness or the importance of something, the like significance. And so kavod being the, the glory of the Lord is the, the, it gives kind of the life, the meaning, the significance, the sacredness of a place. When the kavod is there, that place has been consecrated. That place is now sacred and charged, shot through with a kind of sacred importance and needs to be treated that way from now on. Shekinah is the presence of God, which was frequently uh, symbolized uh, as the spirit in the, the cloud in the wilderness and then in the pillar of fire in the wilderness and in the fire that in the cloud that hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness all through those years, but then would hover over the temple itself in Jerusalem uh, during the time of Solomon. And so what has happened is, is that because Ezekiel is seeing both what he knows to be the kavod and the Shekinah of God, his his um, his sort of his glory and his presence have built, have both have removed themselves, stripped themselves from the temple. Something awful is about to happen because God is essentially saying, "I'm done with that place," which previously had said, "This is my home. This is my seat forever." And so Ezekiel is like, "Well, what does this mean?" And spends 20 chapters of this book asking the question, "Well, what does this mean for the people?" Because the thing that set them apart as Israel was always that the presence of the Lord dwelt in their midst, that they were the ones with whom the God of gods, the Lord of lords, walked, that he walked with them. He was among them, and they were his people, and he was their God. And that was made visible by the glory and the presence of God in their midst throughout all of their wanderings and then in their establishment in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel begins to perceive, as this book goes on, that this is going to have... Uh, implications for everybody. Something Because if this is happening, it means that the world is literally being turned upside down. And so what this means is, uh, it first means something for his ancient covenant people. And so Ezekiel will spend from chapters 12 through 24 talking about what this means for Israel. And he'll eventually conclude like a prosecutor that Israel has A, merited that this punishment that they have indeed welcomed all these sort of idols into the, into the place that exclusively belongs to God alone, both in their temple court, but also into the heart. Their hearts have turned calcified. They are no longer places where anything living is fit to dwell. It is just a heart made of rock. Just like the temple now is just a bunch of pretty polished stones. It's a bunch of rocks set on rock, stone upon stone. And the only way that that can be redeemed now is if it's dismantled and rebuilt again. And so he concludes that this must be the case for Israel, but then he says, this does not mean anything good for the other nations. And so the next few chapters, 25 through 32, as we'll see in the notes there, they have everything to do with, okay, so what does this mean for everybody else? Does it mean that Egypt was right? That, you know, that, um, that, the, that the, the Tyrenians up on the coast were right? That the Babylonians were right? And that Israel's God was weak and frail, and their gods were mighty, and they endured where Israel has fallen? And God is very clear to Ezekiel, he says, no. Because if I'm judging you first, they're going to get it too. He goes, I always deal with you first, though, both in blessing and in discipline. Because I always deal with my own people first. And so he says, I'm going to judge you, and that will be a sign for everyone else to repent. And if they don't repent, there's going to be a cataclysm that falls on each and every one of them, and it does. The Egyptians are wrecked, the Tyrenians wrecked by Babylon, and then the Babylonians are wrecked by the Persians who come to supplant them. And so this judgment befalls the whole creation, basically, the whole land and all the people in it, 
And then what eventually happens is about halfway through the book, or about a third of the way through the book, you see in chapter 33 here that Jerusalem indeed falls. And so all along this way, Ezekiel has been telling the people around him what God has been saying to him, saying, the temple's been deconsecrated, basically. God has withdrawn himself from it. They're like, don't say that. We're going to get back there, and we're going to carry on, and everything's going to be fine. This is just a temporary setback being here as hostages in here. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar will relent. He'll let us back into our land, and we're going to be fine. Everything's going to go back to normal. And then, in the middle of this book, as they're having this debate, and after Ezekiel has been giving them sign after sign of this from what the Lord has been telling him, he this tattered, broken human walks into their midst and is like, the whole city's gone. It's been stripped completely stone from stone. Nothing is left. And the rest of the book then is, okay, so what now? So by the time we get into the 30s, the chapter 34 to 37, which is where our chapter is today, we're now dealing with the kind of flip side of all of this. Judgment has fallen. And if Jerusalem has fallen, it means that judgment is falling everywhere. So this is around circa 580. Right. So in the middle, of, so this book is, and so Ezekiel probably begins his prophecies around 593, about four or five years into the exile. And then about a few years later, so we have between then, we have about seven years between when Ezekiel begins prophesying to this moment where the, the guy from Jerusalem coming with the second wave of exiles, everybody's bloodied and starved from the siege and from the war and everyone's just limping into Babylon now, and they're like, no, there's no going back. There's nowhere to go back to. And the rest of this book now becomes a book of prophecy of restoration, whereas the first part of the book was all about judgment. So by the time we get to the passage we're dealing with here, this is where we enter chapter 34, which is now what is what remains for Israel. And the oracles of the Lord to Ezekiel pull us way back from that question, like, no, no, we're not even talking about Israel yet. We're going back to the ground on this one. So by the time chapter 37 begins, what we, God has said, we're not going just back to like the days of Solomon where we need to build a pretty temple again and get things back to normal. That's, we're way past that point. We need a complete regeneration, a regenesis, a recreation. And this is where he starts to use the term Israel again with full force. Now, we remember that Israel hasn't existed as a kingdom for centuries by this point. If we remember that the, uh, the, divided, the division of the kingdom happened back in 930 B.C. So this was you know, centuries before the first deportation where Ezekiel gets sent off. There wasn't meaningfully one Israel. Israel referred just to the ten northern kingdoms, and then there was Judah in the south, and the northern kingdoms fell. But He's not referring to Israel as those split-off uh, kingdoms or the split-off tribes. He's referring to a single unity of Israel. And that's important because in the second half of chapter 37 that we see today, we're going to be talking about the reconstituting of, of old Israel, covenant Israel again. Not the messy political Israel that was all cutthroat and trying to get, get one up over each other. So when we begin chapter 37 today, where do we begin? Let's turn back to the text here. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. What valley is this? What is it called? Megiddo. Is it Megiddo? 
Does it, does it say that? No. <laughs> so so let's, let's, let's stick with that. Like, so what do we, what makes us think that first of all? Uh, subsequent chapters in Ezekiel? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But here, oh, where is okay. it? What are we dealing with? Oh, if he's in exile. And he's, he's in the spirit? He is in the spirit. Ah. And the spirit makes him to come up, come over the valley with dry bones. Now, what, what does the, is the valley, does they, do, they, do they locate the valley at this point in the book? It doesn't no. say. It doesn't. No. So we, when we're when we're dealing with this, we have to even if the even if in other parts of the book we talk about valleys that have names, which mm -hmm. you're right, exactly right, Connie. The ghetto comes right in in just a few chapters here. Um, but when we talk about when we're at this point in the story, it hasn't been labeled yet. And so what we have to do is we have to kind of pause for a second and say, okay, we're just in a valley. And so we have to ask, what is the significance of being in a valley versus somewhere else? Now, remember, we're going back to the beginning here. By the time we get to 37, we're, we've, we've, we've addressed the need for a complete regenesis here. So a good place to talk about new beginnings is, of course, in the place where the old beginnings were, which is Garden of Eden. But even before that. Okay. So let's go back to Genesis 2. Yeah. Go back to Genesis 2 in your Bibles. Jack, will you look up Genesis 2 there? I will. For me to answer <laughs> yeah. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter two and the creation of, of the people. That's right. So the heavens and the earth were finished at this point. God ended the work he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work. But then in chapter 2 here, we have a kind of return to the sixth day of creation, mm -hmm. the creation of man and woman. We have, and with this, we get a kind of a closer, more sort of um, human-centered view of what's going on with the creation of humanity here. So what does it say then? This is the history of the heavens and the earth that they were created. We're starting the kind of creation account over again. God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens before any of the plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was no man to till the ground, but mist went up on the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Bashan, and so on and so forth. But we let's take a look there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So what we're dealing with here is we're, we're dealing with in Ezekiel a return to this moment and the imagery of this. Now, in the poetry of Genesis 2, it's, 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 it's sometimes it doesn't emerge in the kind of English translation as much. But the, the spatial imagination of the book of Genesis is that Eden is set up on a kind of high place. It's set up on 
a on a sort of a hilltop, and the dust of the ground that he forms the man out is outside of it on on one of the sides of this raised place, which makes it a valley. And so throughout the poetry of the Psalms, for example, the poetry of the wisdom literature, you get this idea that Eden is set up on kind of a mountain, and that the land where the man was gathered from the dust of the ground, being outside of Eden because he was put into Eden is formed of the dust of this sort of valley outside of Eden that he's then sent to after the fall of the, of the humans, of the, of the man and the woman. So if keeping in mind that this is the poetic imagery that we're dealing with here, going back to Ezekiel 37, what we're dealing with here is we're in the spirit of the Lord, we're with the spirit of the Lord, going into this valley, this dusty, dry valley that is full of bones. Now, what is different about this valley versus the kind of Genesis valley out of which... The first man was formed. What's the, the most obvious significant difference? What's bones. here now? There are bones. There are lots of bones everywhere here. Now let's play with that for a second. What is what is significant about these differences? What has happened in the meantime? Earth has been populated. It has. And then what? People have died. And then everyone's dead. Everyone's dead. <laughs> At this point. And so what we're noting here is that we're not going back to like the beginning before any of this happened. But we are going back to a new beginning after all these things have run their course. And that's the significant difference here. Okay. Is that we're now we're, we're not negating history. We're not saying that the things that have happened have not happened. We're not living counterfactually in that way. What we are saying, though, is that these things have gone as far as they can go. And this is what they have produced. They have littered a valley. The valley into which the man and the woman were sent after Eden has now been populated by the bones of them and all their descendants. And this is the end of man. And we begin there with the spirit of the Lord, who then looks to the prophet Ezekiel and said, son of man, which is in the Hebrew that he would, that he would be communicating in here, it would be son of Adam. Because remember, that, that man is just Adam in Genesis. That's why he calls him that. We're going back, he's not saying, like, priest of the temple. He's not saying, you know, you know, son of Judah, you know, son of Levi. He's saying, son of Adam. Can these bones live? And what's his response? I like his response. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, not answering, except he is answering. Yeah. <laughs> Only you oh, know. Lord, he's God, like, you know. You know. I'll never not be able to hear this in the word, in the voice of Father David Brownstein, who always read it at the Easter Vigil year oh, after year yeah. when I was yeah when I was here. He, he, said, he said it in that kind of recovering Brooklyn accent that he had. Let you know, he's like, "Oh Lord, Thou knowest." <laughs> you know, it was just great. That you know, was just inimitable. Okay. Um, but you have, but you have, you have, you hear this sort of. Uh, it's like imagining if you were welcomed into the moment before the first man was was created in the valley of dust outside of the Garden of Eden where the Lord had caused all this greenage to, to spring up. And he's like, what can be made of this? And what it does is it, it, brings, it brings us to the edge of the imagination. The fact that Ezekiel cannot offer an answer to this means that we've come to the point where, you know, the human vision of creativity and the human vision of redemption is over. Right? The temple is gone. What's possible? Oh, no. and old, yeah, yeah. Only you know. Only you have. Only you have the vision of, of that, that can create in the midst of this. This is so broken, right? This is a valley of dry bones. We cannot do anything about this. And so Ezekiel is brought to see in this vision 
a the end of all things. It's like this is the this is the end point of all human work under the old, uh, under the old way of things. Unless a new work begins, this is the end thing. This is the end of everything. It's a valley that just continues to pile up with bones that dry out and blow away. It's like, what can we do from here, son of man? And that's where we begin this chapter, is with this answer to the question. And so what we see here is a recasting, a regenesis of humanity. We're not even talking about Israel yet, although we will get there immediately, because we're going to, it's going to tie in a new humanity in the midst of a new Israel. He's going to say, son of Adam, this is what we're going to do. You're going to prophesy to these bones. You're going to make them hear the word of the Lord. Now, this again takes us back to Genesis. How did God create in Genesis? By his word and by his breath. And so, you know, you have this, you have the speech act that brings forth life where there is no life. And so he says, son of man, speak the word of the Lord. And the spirit of God, the breath of God that is with you and around you will revive and give life to where there is only death. It will bring life where there is no life. And so the redemption that starts to begin after the worst imaginable thing has happened, the end of the world has happened. After the world, the world ends, what's still possible? It, after the world ends, a new world has to be made. And so God begins to make the new world in the midst of this, this ruins of the old world. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to create a human race again. And it's going to come out of the midst of Israel. It's going to be intimately tied with this. There'll be a new humanity that I'm going to form of the dust of the ground and, and the bones that are littered everywhere here. And I'm going to create them like I did before. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to set them back in their city again, which is paralleling Genesis. So the return to Jerusalem is also seen as a kind of return to the Garden of Eden. So when it refers to in the midst of the valley, that's immaterial to the story. Yeah. In the midst of the valley, it's just this is the dry place. Yeah, yeah this, is the, this is the dry place of the dust of the ground. Yeah. And it's made to parallel how the, how the readers of the Old Testament would have understood mm -hmm. the spatial geography, the topography of Eden and the, and, the, like the, and, the, and the valley east of Eden, which, which comes after the fall. He says they were sent out into the valley east, to the east of Eden from where they had been gathered, where the man had been gathered. better specifically connote that. It yes, does. it does. And so this is, so we're seeing like, so because of this imagery of breath and dust and bone and, and, and like, and again, and what happens later when they're regathered back into their place again from all the places they, they dispersed, we're seeing again not only the, the regathering of an ethnic people back to their homeland, we're also seeing that intimately tied with this redemption of Israel is going to be a redemption of all of humanity because everyone's going to be regathered from that great scattering in Genesis and brought back to the point where it all went wrong. And by the work of the Lord, what went wrong will be made right. And so... For, you know, as the, as the, again, in the topography of the Old Testament, it's important for us to see this, that Jerusalem was understood to sit on the same plateau that the Garden of Eden had sat on way back. And that had later become Mount Moriah, where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and then later on was Jerusalem. But these are all the same mountaintop we're talking about in, these, in the kind of topography of the Old Testament. This is the same mountain. You know, the, the, the high place of the Lord, where heaven and earth overlap with each other. 
And so what, happened, what has to happen before we can be brought back into Eden? We have to be created again. <laughs> and then what begins to happen after this? Let's look at 37 again. I'll go between things here. All right. So once he prophesies that they become living again, they're, they're inanimate, though. They cannot move. They're only formed, but they're not filled with that breath again. And so he says to him, he says to him, Son of man, prophesy to the breath, and say to the breath, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And this again perfects that image of a new humanity being created, because back in Genesis 2, we'll know that after God had formed the man of the dust of the ground, what does he do? He breathes into his nostrils his own breath, the breath of God goes into him. And then he becomes a living soul at that point, so that they may live. So now we have the new humanity. And then God begins, he immediately marries this image of a new humanity with a redeemed Israel. He says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Again, not the northern kingdom with its political squabbles. This is like the family of Jacob once again reconstituted as one family before their divisions. They are one kingdom, they are one house, they are one people again. And so that's why he tells him later on to get the two sticks, right? He says, take the two sticks and write the house of, you know, Je you know the house of Joseph and Ephraim and everything, right? The house over, over here of Judah, and then put them together, and they will become one in your hand, and you will carry them around as a prophetic symbol of this reunification. And so when we see Israel here, we're not going back to the, just, we're not winding the clock back to the, before the cataclysm that befell the northern kingdom. We're not saying, hey, we're going to rescue the kingdom of Israel so that you and Judah can fight each other some more. So we're going way back beyond that. We've recreated Adam. A new Adam has been made out of the bones of the old Adam. And out of this, we're going to have a new Israel that comes out of that new humanity. And then what's going to happen? Out of that new Israel, what's going to happen from them? After these people have been reunited to each other, we go to later in the chapter, I'm sorry, give my, my verse uh, notes back here. I can give you a verse number. Bring them in their own land. Yeah, verse 21. It says, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And now what we've done is we've overlapped the story of Genesis after the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the people across the earth. We're reverse engineering all of that in this redemptive work. And it's happening at the same time that God is bringing his own people back from all the captivities that they've been sent out into, both for, to the Assyrian captivity when the northern kingdom fell, and also the captivity in Babylon that Ezekiel was being made to participate in here. So what is he saying? He's saying that I'm going to start reconstituting a one people again, one human family again, and what's going to happen? So... As I'm gathering this people, what's going to come, what's going to emerge and be made revealed among that people? We have this emergence of David, my servant, the king that shall be over them. Again, we're like, David, David's part of the dry bone valley here, right? Like, he died centuries before this. So what are we talking about here? You know, he died, you know, half a millennium before this. So what we're talking about here is that we're having someone who is a kind of symbolic figure who is like David come among. And so it's basically saying out of the house of David, a king will come 
that will govern this whole people that are being reconstituted, that will be both Israel remade and also humanity remade and regathered again. And they'll be like one people at this point. And so and by the end of 37, we have the emergence, the revelation of a king coming out of this regathered people. And so we're like we're telling the whole history of the Old Testament from this point, but in reverse, right? So we went from the Garden of Eden to the splintering of humanity, to the formation of Israel, to the formation of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom, and the exiling of everybody. And he's like, what's going to happen is I'm going to, I'm going to heal all of those fractures. I'm going to heal all of those wounds that have taken place. That means I'm going to bring back these people, then I'm going to, I'm going to, heal, I'm going to heal all of these things that went wrong. And eventually what it's going to look like is I'm going to bring them back into a sanctuary place again. Then we're going to rebuild the temple. But the temple's not going to look like what it did. And so this is the beginning of the answer that then unfolds here in the rest of the book of Ezekiel is, you know, he says, once, once we've done this, then we'll talk about the temple. But if your ambition right now is to just escape Babylon so you can go back, rebuild the temple, and get back to doing things the way you were doing, I've got news for you. That is not how we're about to go do this. We're doing a new creation. The old things have brought us to the valley of dry bones. They can't go any further, and you know it because you have no answer to my question. Can these bones live? Of course they can't. Unless they're given life. So we're at the very end of all things, unless a new beginning comes to us. So by the end of 37, the nations, we get a vision of the nations that will then unfold as we go into chapter 38 and 39, which is just like before that judgment falls on Israel, and then that signals that judgment is going to fall on all the, the nations, the powers of the world. So when redemption comes through this new humanity that is brought about in the midst of a redeemed Israel, it's going to then be a blessing to the nations. That's going to gather them from their exile. And it's going to bring them into the people of God. And then from that point, after this humanity is redeemed, we then, in the final chapters of this book, 40 to 48, we talk about how this hope then extends out to the whole creation and that eventually Eden itself is restored as a new Jerusalem. It's both a garden and a city, and out of which comes this uh, river that then re-irrigates the valley of dry bones and heals it of its dryness and its futility and waters the earth again. And Eden, so that the creation itself becomes as the Garden of Eden became. And that's the end of the book of Ezekiel. But we're at this real inflection point here where we've come to the very end of what all the old stuff can bring us. Ultimately, all the political scheming, the political division, all of the individual wickedness, what did it bring us to? The Valley of Dry Bones. This is our inheritance. This is the land. This is what we've made of it. This is all we can make of it. And now something new has to begin. So, this is why we read it on Easter Eve, because this is where, in the darkness of Easter Eve, we begin asking the question, okay, we have just crucified the Son of God. Um, what, is, what is still possible for us? And the final passage we read on Easter Eve is this passage. It's always the last one, no matter how many we read. This is the last one where he says, Son of Man, 
can these bones live? And then what the answer to that is the liturgy that then unfolds of the first Easter Mass, which is Christ indeed is risen and has triumphed over death. Become the first, the new Adam, right? The revived Adam, who can then offer humanity again to all of us who are who would become like the dry bones. So we'll pause there. And for the remainder of our time, I'd like to just kind of open it up to questions about little individual nuances or anything we've said so far. Just so we can kind of make sure we, we lock down any ambiguities that remain. So all those zealots, or uh, there's another name for them, those, those, those um, temple, uh, those that want to rebuild the physical temple, <clears throat> miss the whole entire reading, they miss the whole point of the scripture. Yes, well, Yes and no. They yes, yes and no. Because you know, they go back to, to reconstitute Jerusalem and and you know, by the word of Cyrus who releases them from the captivity, that they go back to rebuild Jerusalem. But we'll remember that when they build the temple after the exile, the Kavod and the Shekinah don't come back to that temple. And so after they, they rebuilt the Temple of Solomon, or they, they think they've rebuilt it, it's not as glorious as the Temple of Solomon in structure. It's a simpler place. It's a humbler place. And then they consecrate it, but the glory of the Lord, the presence of his majesty, don't come to dwell over it. And then that becomes an open question for the latter prophets, mm -hmm. right? For the, the minor prophets of the Old Testament. They say, well, what does this mean for us? I think it's interesting, though, that Christ himself still visited the temple and taught in the temple. Yep. And so it was still a place worthy of gathering. It was still a place of worship. It was still a place of teaching. It was still a place that was sacred in its, in a in a different way. Um, I say specifically because he was there, right? Yeah. But also he honored it because it was there. You know, it became a place where he frequented. I just think it's interesting that. Even that was used, yep. you know, and can be used. So, so what was the <clears throat> point of Christ being the temple and as going to the going to, going to the temple? Yeah, um, I mean, many reasons I would think, but one of them strikes me as a point of contrast. Hey, yeah, when okay. he comes in, is presented in the arms of his mother at his presentation. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's the first time the glory of the Lord re-enters the temple since the time of the destruction in 586. Mm -hmm. Because the presence of God in, you know, the fullness of the presence of God dwells in Christ. Right. And when he comes in as a little baby, that's the thing they've been waiting for for five centuries by right. that point. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. But then Jesus judges the temple too. Yeah. Right. You know, on Palm Sunday, right? We read that. And when he enters the city, he comes in and says, This is not a house of prayer. Yeah. And he deconsecrates it. When he leaves the temple, he never goes back into it again. Right. After his resurrection, Jesus doesn't go back to the temple again. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. So he, he does, but it's almost like to create a contrast of being like, Yeah. This is this is not what this is not the end point here. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, again, we have to. It's almost like we have to imagine bigger, right? He's like, no, no. This temple will be brought down. Not a single stone will be will be yeah. laid on it, just like the last one. Yeah. Because the temple of my body 
That is the temple that will endure forever. Right. That is where the glory of the Lord and the Spirit descended on, you know, and was made manifest as baptism, right? But the Shekinah of God descends upon him as baptism, and, it cons- and it's the same language that was used in the consecration of Solomon's temple. Yeah. And so it's just like, it, and so he's saying like, but then, it, but then there's always this contrast uh, between these things, these perceptions. Yeah. yeah. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I just think it's interesting how all things can be used. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And even, I just, you know, I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking also of this whole story reminds me of hitting rock bottom in AA. Yeah. Oh. And until you you reach this point of can this be resurrected? Right. Mm. And until you reach that point, there's really no new life for you. That's right. And so it's, it's that story, you know, that just, it's the theme. So the whole 12-step the program couldn't be to come out of this chapter. Well, you know, insofar as it brings us to the end of ourselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's You're what right. this is. Well, so and in terms of recovery, it's it's like, it's the ultimate recovery story. Yeah, yeah. sure. Really. <laughs> we, can't, we can't really begin to heal from loss until we say goodbye. Right. Right. And we exactly. can't. We can't really, we can't really start recovery from addiction until we admit, like we, we, we can't. We're the we're just the valley of dry bones now. And a good confession is right. the realization right. of, can I do anything about this? Only with your help, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then we turn back, and that's kind of what I see here. That's right. And it's a redemption. It's the redemption yeah. story over and over and over again. Right. Mm. T.S. Eliot, the Anglo Catholic poet, he, he, he puts it in the image of spitting from the mouth the withered apple seed of the fruit of evil. Mm. Finally, finally letting go of it. Yeah. Like in that being that. Yeah. What did she say? He yeah. said, spitting from the mouth the withered apple seed. The withered apple yeah, seed. Referring to the fruit of evil. Finally, all the, it's everything, that's the only thing left. It's that last seed you just spit out like a watermelon seed. <laughs> it's the last trace of that knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but until we do that, you know, and this this is why you know Christians, uh, you know, why we are we're, we're realists around things like death, because if death is not real, then resurrection is also not real. Mm. And if there is not really a problem, mm. then there really is no need of a solution. And this is why when we hedge conversations around the reality of brokenness, pain, and death. We also simultaneously, and whether we like it or not, also hedge and begin to undermine conversations of hope, healing, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And you know, even in our practice of you know praying that we might receive the grace of resurrection, we also sometimes fall into this as well in the form of like wanting to kind of wanting instead a kind of resuscitation. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and when I you know when I was when I've been around recovery communities. This sometimes is one of those those false starts to recovery yeah. is I don't really want to get sober. Yeah. I actually just want to get sober enough so that I feel back in control again. Yeah. And then I got it from there. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that was the problem <laughs> is that you were in control. <laughs> and you need to like, we need to, again, we have to go deeper than we think we always have to in order to actually recover. Yeah. So I'm interested in the term kavod. Yeah. Don't. I'm not familiar with that yeah. compared to Shekinah. Yeah. So why why have those been like decoupled uh, in 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 our Christian history or, or 
I don't know. Uh, and I don't know that they have universally been decoupled. They, they, they tend to come with each other, you know, as, and around the tabernacle. Yeah. Okay, the so old therefore, in my, in my evangelical background, why have they been decoupled? Because of the gravity of the, of the glory of yeah. God? Yeah, kavod re- refers to, like, uh, like, sanctity. And it's, a, it's, another, it's another kind of, sometimes a code word for, like, holiness, the holiness mm-hmm. of God, um, like, which is a weighty thing. Yeah. You know, it's a it it, it, it it comes down like it's like in the imagery of Mount Sinai, right? In the Exodus sure. story, it's this presence of the Lord that's a fearful that, presence. Yeah, that sets down on Mount Sinai and nearly kills the mountain. Right. They said the mountain shook, right? Like the mountain was barely holding this thing up, right? Like it couldn't hold up the weighty presence of the Lord. Right. We think about that too, that it's an act of condescension that the earth is made capable of bearing the presence of the Lord at all, right? Like, <laughs> we, it's like it would be like otherwise dropping an anvil through a piece of copier paper, <laughs> right? That's really what we're talking about by comparison, and even that comparison is inadequate. You know, and the fact that the earth is, is given the grace to bear the presence of the Lord, right? And then when we think about the Spirit of the Lord descending on the, on the disciples at Pentecost, right? Where they say, oh, it's like a light and airy and fluffy thing, right? And it's, no, it's not. It's like this, this presence that comes to dwell over, right? And at Pentecost, which we're about to observe it here in a few weeks, that's what we're talking about, too, that as the Spirit descends on Christ in his baptism and it reveals the Shekinah has come to dwell over the new temple, this is the temple. So when the, when the disciples are gathered and the Spirit of the Lord descends over them as a flame of fire, it signals again the kavod, the Shekinah, has been has has come upon the new temple people, which is the gathered faithful, the fellowship. And so this is the temple, and so that's why when the temple is destroyed in seventy A.D. by the Romans for the final time, that you know the Christians just saw that as like yeah, because that wasn't the temple anymore; it was deconsecrated. And if it, if it had a shot at becoming the reconsecrated temple again when Jesus walked into it, that he was rejected in it, too, mm-hmm. even though he made use of it, which is right. And he gave it a shot. He gave them every chance. And then when they rejected him, he's like, this is no longer a house of prayer. And that's not just a descriptive thing. That's a judgment. Because mm-hmm. he had to give them a, a real chance. Yeah, he gave them, he, I mean, he was like, here Correct. I am. In the temple. The presence of the Lord has now come back to dwell in the temple like you've been hoping for since the days of Ezekiel. And they're like, no thanks. And they send him out, and he's like, all right, this is no longer a temple. And when he, when he says that, it's not just, it's not, again, not descriptive. It's not remarking on something. He's pronouncing. Mm-hmm. He's like, this will not be the temple. And then we move on. Third day. Yeah. <laughs> the temple is raised. Right. Yeah. What are you talking about? What are we all thinking? That was amazing. I mean, I, I will never be at Easter even again and hear the dry bones. I just always say, okay, what, you know, what's the deal with the dry bones? You know, it's like, it, it, that is just amazing to me. So amazing. And yeah. especially tying uh, the original creation, decreation, back to creation through Messiah is just like, wow. <laughs> and Constance, I'm with you on that Megiddo. We grew up with thinking that was Megiddo, right? But I grew up with that this was the reconstituting of Israel becoming a nation. 
right? Yeah, right. That's yeah. what they use that, and it's like you know, yeah. and and yeah. But, yeah. yeah. No, it goes yep. back. Goes back further. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's yeah. Cool. And it's giving back, you know, it's giving you back your destiny again, right? All of us, right? And that's because Israel was created in the first place. Out of the all the peoples of the earth, Israel was called forth by God. Why? To be the people among whom the Lord could be known. Right? That all who pass by would say, Let us come with you, for we know the Lord, your the Lord is with you. Yeah. Right? Grab an Israelite by the shirt sleeve and say, Take us with you to the temple. And that is again where you know what is what is the, what is the case you know and as participants in that right those who have been made part of this redemptive work as Christians right who have been raised to new life in baptism who have been given the Spirit of God as and to, to strengthen us right this is this is we have been consecrated to this purpose you know to to be part of this redemptive work. Just worship God. That's why we have the whole vigil service after reading this. It's like that's all you can do after that, you know. <laughs> have a two-hour mass afterward. <laughs> a workout. <laughs> yeah. But but in the vigil liturgy, we're actually playing out the, the the whole rest of the book of Ezekiel here. Because by the time we get to chapter forty to forty-eight, the end vision of this is a restored Eden, out of which comes again a river. And in the language of this, because Eden is, re is set as a new Jerusalem on you know the old, in, on the mountaintop, the river comes out out of the out of the side of the temple, mm -hmm. and it washes mm -hmm. down and it re-irrigates the Dead Sea, mm -hmm. and it makes it capable of bearing life again. Mm -hmm. so the Dead Sea, of course, the salinity of which being so high that nothing can live in it, um, that it, it, it this, this water is so pure that it basically dilutes the salinity and it makes it capable of bearing life again. And brings life out of these waters again, and so when we're in the Easter vigil service, right? What do we? What happens right after we read Ezekiel? We go back to the baptismal font mm -hmm. and re reconstitute the baptismal font, and then the choir sings the Vidiaquam, right? I beheld water which yeah. out of the temple, out of the right side thereof, and all the people to whom that water came were healed, every one. And that's when Bishop comes and douses us all in water. <laughs> you got to take your glasses off while he does that. <laughs> But this is all, this is a, uh, it's, again, we're meant to see ourselves as participants in this. Yeah. When we participate in Easter, where we acknowledge that we are being made participants in this redemptive work. You know, we are being constituted as, as this people that, have, that were the dry bones of the valley that have now been made living souls again. You know, capable of inheriting Eden again. I mean, my question, like, what is it, how do we make sure we're believing? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, how, I mean, we can't control that, but yeah. it's like, you know, Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me will get all this, you know, mm -hmm. and I'll remake you, and, and we're seeing it. I mean, we see it yeah. done in our lives, but it's just like, just keep me, keep believing, whatever that means. I think what's significant trusting that God will keep. <laughs> ah, but I think what that looks like is something actually kind of uncontroversial, and that is just live like it's true. Mm -hmm. you know, go about your day as though that's true. Mm -hmm. Just like with 
with a communion. Yeah. And he did forgive you. It doesn't matter about your feelings today. No. You just said right. it. You said it as best you could. It is a fact. We had all the prayers that say, even if I didn't say it as best I could, here it is. This is the thing that sets apart as our faith from all the religions of the world, is that it may claims that um, it is not the suggestion of a new mythology. Mm. It is the it is the proposition that in fact mm. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, mm-hmm. mm. um, and that this happened in the in the sight of many witnesses, mm-hmm. and not as a private revelation, not as a mystical vision that one person had and then persuaded everybody of. That this was known in power among the people that were otherwise scattered, and has since then overtaken every corner of the earth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say live like that's true. Mm-hmm. Not how you feel. Yeah. And, and our feelings are not irrelevant on this, but they catch up. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They often catch up. They're the, they're the part of ourselves we have the least control over. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we make them the thing that we want to have the most control over in order to feel like anything is actually true. Right. And very often it's the case that we begin doing something and then our feelings catch up to it. My, my aunt and uncle, this is what's coming to my mind, my aunt and uncle adopted these two kids a long time ago from Russia. They're like 20 now. Mm-hmm. But they were knocking in the freezing cold for food, and they were just so hungry, and then they were in an orphanage. And then when they first came here, they just kept checking the refrigerator to make sure the food was there. Or like they, yeah. And it's just like over time, they knew they didn't have to like take everything off the table to eat yeah. because my be aunt and uncle kept feeding them yeah. <laughs> consistently. <laughs> So it catches up. Wow. Really good. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts before we conclude our time together? Praise God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me pray for us, mm-hmm. and then we'll conclude our time. The Lord be with you. With thy spirit. Let us pray. O God of peace. You have promised us that in returning and resting in you, be safe. You have promised us that in our quiet confidence in you, you will find true strength. By the might of your Holy Spirit, lift us now to your presence, where we can be still and know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bishop will be proud. <laughs> We're going to push that them. means the world. We, to me. Oh, does that? Hang no, on seriously, then? without any facetiousness, no. Like he's my spiritual father. So, yeah. You know, <laughs> want to make want to make him proud. So, excellent. thank you all for letting me be with you all. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Know, you. Thank you. The delight. Yes, history. thank you so much. Talk about Ezekiel. My word. What a privilege. Uh-huh. <laughs> I want to do the vigil all over again. I know, seriously. right? <laughs> Next year, well, it will never be the same. It will, never yeah, right. Be the same. It, yeah. Uh, cool. Thank nice. you. All right, peace, everybody. Peace. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay, do you want me to sleep? Thank you, Warren.